0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. It's perhaps one of history's funny accidents that relations between the U.S. and Russia were changed not by one, but two George Kennans. Decades before George F. Kennan wrote his famous long telegram that set the tone for the Cold War, his predecessor was exploring Russia's Far East on a quest to investigate the then Russian Empire's practice of exiling political prisoners to Siberia. What Kennan saw on his journey shook him to his very core, forcing him to question his respect for the Russian Empire. And as writer Gregory Waltz explains in his book, Into Siberia, George Kennan's epic journey through the brutal, frozen heart of Russia, Kennan's advocacy upon his return turned U.S. views of Russia away from it being a faraway friend to something far more skeptical. Gregory Waltz is a lawyer and writer in New York City. He is the author of Papa's Game, which received a nonfiction nomination for an Edgar Allan Poe Award. America's Soul in the Balance, The Woman Who Fought an Empire, and the historical novel Two Men Before the Storm. He is currently an opinion contributor for The Hill. Today, Greg and I talk about Kennan, his many trips to Siberia, and the effect his journalism had on American views of Russia. So Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um you know, perhaps best to start with with who who exactly was George Kennan? I mean, who who was this man who um I guess went to siberia several times um like where what was his background
0: well first nicholas thank you for having me on your podcast george kennan was an american explorer and journalist famous in his day which was the last half of the 19th century but largely forgotten today in june of 1885 He went to Siberia to investigate the Siberian, as a journalist, to investigate the Siberian exile system that you referred to, which had sent just in a century, that century, one million Russian convicts and regime opponents into what could absolutely be called a vast prison without a roof. He went with an artist named George Frost from Boston who was going to draw the illustrations for Kennan's articles about his investigation, which would run in the Century Illustrated monthly magazine, which you, could, you might consider the New Yorker of his day. And he had been to Russia once before as a young man, to Siberia once before as a young man, to Russia, the Caucasus, uh, also when he was young. And at the time of his exile investigation, Cannon considered himself a friend of Russia. You could call him a Russophile. And he thought he, he intended to conduct an objective, thorough investigation. But he thought that his investigation would demonstrate that the exile system was actually more humane than many European or even American uh, penal systems elsewhere. And He went to Siberia to conduct this investigation on the basis of a profoundly mistaken belief about the exile system. He thought he was investigating a traditional system of justice and incarceration whose penal objectives are punishment, rehabilitation, deterrence, and so on. And what he discovered was that the penal system, while it had some of the, the the exile system, while it had some of those characteristics, but a few of them actually, was primarily a brutal, cruel instrument of the Russian Empire's exploitation of Siberia's vast natural resources and a means to punish and suppress dissent.
1: Um, so I, I do want to... Quickly talk about the Siberian exile system. Before we talk for most of this interview about, about, about George Kennan, um, what exactly was the Siberian exile system? How did it get its start?
0: You'd have to go back hundreds of years before Kennan's investigation, back to the 16th century, uh, to find the roots of the exile system. And its genesis lay in... First, the conquest of Siberia by the Russian Empire, nine percent of the land surface, the Earth's land surface, and the discovery of its vast natural resources—gold and silver, fertile agricultural lands in the southern part, uh, a good location for factories because of water, river systems, and so on—and the problem in exploiting those resources that the Russian empire faced was basically uh, who wanted to go there and work in a mine or work in a factory. And so they had to find a way to recruit a labor force for Siberia. And what they did was to turn their penal code into from a code, they turned it from a code of justice into a recruitment code for Siberia. So, for example, capital punishment was abolished in Russia in the 18th century. And in its place, murderers were sent not to execution, but were sentenced to hard labor for life in Siberia, where they were put to work exploiting Siberia's resources. But pretty soon, those mines and factories and farms ran out of murderers to work for them. So they expanded the penal system, the, the penal code to include common law, more common law offenses, robberies, rapes, etc. But even that proved insufficient to supply the labor force that was needed in Siberia. So they expanded it even further. And pretty soon, uh, they, <laughs> the Russian uh, regime was sending to Siberia people who had failed to pay their taxes, deserters from the army, people who had offended someone in their village government, which was given practically the uh, unfettered right to send to Siberia people for for merely being obnoxious or unpleasant in somebody's subjective view. And soon, uh, by the time Kennan conducted his investigation, you had exile parties setting out from Western Russia, hundreds of exiles, convicted some not convicted of anything, uh, in chains, many of them, marching thousands of miles under Cossack guard, to destinations in Siberia where they were put to work. They marched in the summer, through the heat, because this again, this is southern Siberia, and it's not quite the same as our image generally of Siberia is just cold and vast tundra wasteland. This was southern Siberia. In the summer, it got hot and dusty, and they marched through that. But in the winter, in many places, it still experienced harsh you know, blizzards and so on, and they marched through you know, uh, deep snow. Uh, so many died on the way that localities, the local villages in Siberia claimed to the regime in St. Petersburg, that they just couldn't handle this. They, they didn't have the funds for proper burials and so on. And they were basically told, you know, get get the money from uh, your local government, but we're going to keep them marching. And as Kennan remarked, the amazing thing about these exile marches was not that so many died, but that but that so many got through at all. And enough made it that it ultimately, you know, it was enough to justify this way of supplying uh, a labor force to Siberia. And when George Kennan had spent, perhaps, he, he crosses the Siberian frontier in June of 1885, and he starts by visiting prisons, meeting political dissidents who were not always Put in prison they were often just sent to remote villages and left there for some period of time at least he started meeting these these political dissidents and visiting prison after prison and that's when it dawned on him and we can actually pinpoint a specific moment but he realized how wrong he had been and you see one of kennan kennan had had publicly defended the exile system before he went to Siberia to investigate it. And his argument, and again, this stems from partly from his great affinity for Russia, uh, part of his argument was that the Siberian exile system was more humane than the European systems, because unlike traditional penal systems, the exile system did not break families up, because wives and children were allowed in many, many instances to accompany their husbands or fathers to Siberia. And then he arrives at a prison, a forwarding prison, where the exiles are kept for a couple of weeks before they're sent on to factories uh, and farms and the mines, the gold and silver mines. And this is a a forwarding prison in in the town of Tomsk in Siberia. he, he asked permission from the uh, from the warden to come to to inspect the the, uh, the prison, and partly because of his reputation as a friend of Russia, it was a well developed reputation. We'll talk about how that came about. But but the warden was quite open. Said, "I'll show you the prison, uh, but I want to warn you something." And this is this kind of candid Russian characteristic. It's the worst mm-hmm. prison you'll ever see. And he takes. Kenan around the prison, and he takes Kenan to these family barracks. They're not a cell. They're a, a crude structure with a floor full of holes and a roof, and only cotton sheets for walls. And that's where the families accompanying the convicts are put, women and children, babies, mothers, nursing babies. And what he sees is this Massive people, so crammed in that they can hardly move without bumping into one another. The smell of excrement rises from the broken floorboards, uh, and it's cold. And as the warden and he enter this barracks, this family barracks, young women, young mothers nursing children come up to the warden and plead to be allowed to. Spend the night with their infants in the prison bathhouse where they thought it would be warmer. Mm-hmm. And the prison kept saying, No, no, it's safer for you here. It's safer for your baby here. And Kennan says to him, Why won't you let them in the bathhouse? These cotton sheets, they, they don't keep the cold out. And it was cold. And he said, I tried letting them stay. That was the warden says, I tried letting them stay. In the bathhouse, but the atmosphere was too close, and and uncomfortable, and hot, and damp, and unbreathable, that the babies died every night there. That night, Kenan had trouble sleeping, because mm. remember, he had defended the exile system as better for the families, better for the wives and the children, and he when he falls asleep. He dreams of dead babies in bathhouses. And that was the turning point for him. There was another turning point about this same time. And that was his encounters with these political exiles, the exiles who, in some way, by, by giving the wrong talk in a school or writing the wrong paper or even reading correspondence that they hadn't written... But which the regime regarded as subversive ended up in Siberia. But as I mentioned, they were not some of them were convicted of political offenses, some of them were revolutionaries, violent ones, but others were completely nonviolent. And many of those ended up in these small villages in Siberia, in sort of an exile to the village. Uh, and he was able to meet many of them. Uh, and what he discovered was not. In what he had expected, what he had expected, were fanatic, wild-eyed nihilists, you know, proclaiming Russia needs no democracy, Russia needs nothing, we don't need anything, go away. And and often he thought of them as very violent. Uh, instead, what he found when he meet these when he met these young men and women were people very much like him, well educated, fluent in other languages, and he spoke fluent Russian, uh, desiring reform for Russia, often reform based on the Constitution and freedoms that America had, because they admired American democracy immensely. And between his encounter with the family barracks and his encounter, an encounter with these principled young men and women, you could think of them as the predecessors of Alexei Navalny and other dissidents of our own era, he realized he had been wrong, totally wrong about Russia and the exile system. And from Tomsk, uh, he was able from the big Russian cities to send letters to family and friends, but also to his publisher at the Century Illustrated monthly magazine, And what he wrote was basically a a confession. In fact, maybe I can even just read you briefly Mm -hmm. what he said. The exile says, this is what he wrote. He said, the exile system is worse than I believed it to be, and worse than I have described it. It isn't pleasant, of course, to have to admit That one has written upon a subject without fully understanding it. But even that is better than trying, for the sake of consistency, to maintain a position after one sees that it is utterly untenable. And to me, this was the great thing about George Kennedy, the great thing about his character, because he was willing to admit, and he did it, you know, he put that letter. Into his book that he later wrote, Siberian: The Exile System, which was a major work uh, explaining what he had found, he put that letter into that book, and he was willing to admit that he had been wrong. He was willing to change his mind, and and in a certain sense, that's what my book my book is about. It's about a man who was willing to admit he'd been wrong on something fundamental on which he had staked his reputation, uh, and. Whatever the consequences, that was better than insisting that something wasn't what it was.
1: So let's talk about that that journey. And I mean his 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 life journey. I mean, so there's there's his first trip to Russia, which is part of this um this ill-fated telegraph expedition, um, to kind of I guess make a telegraph cable going the other way rather than across the Atlantic, it would go across Russia. Um and uh he goes, he goes on this journey because otherwise, like his, the family doctor goes to his mother and says, like you, you, you got to get him out of this telegraph office, um, and he's got to otherwise he'll kind of die a nervous wreck. Um, so I guess what was Kennan's first trip to Russia like as part of this telegraph expedition, and then how did he leverage that? upon like how he let leverage that experience upon his return and become seen as this as this russophile before he then goes on this on this much more consequential journey to investigate the exile system
0: to answer that question we have to examine a little bit mm. uh, kenan's youth he was born yeah. in 1845 in a small town in ohio and he grew up pretty much like an ordinary boy playing their form of baseball and learning to hunt and riding horses uh, and reading voraciously. And he had two great interests as a boy. One was to explore. That he, I think he was born with that instinct that I'm an explorer, I want to explore. And the other great interest was the telegraph because his father worked in a telegraph office and one year before Kennan was born, Samuel Moore sent that famous, you know, what hath God wrought telegraph telegram from Washington to Baltimore. And in a very short time, the telegraph wires were everywhere in the country. And he grew up with that technology, learned to be actually as a, like a 10 or 11 year old proficient with the telegraph key. Uh, but then he encountered a setback, more than a setback. Uh, a a young when he was with a young friend and that he was again roughly 12 13 his friend got his arm caught in working machinery and it had to be amputated and kenan went to the doctor's office where this was taking place and he pressed it out of curiosity boy had curiosity and he pressed his face against the glass almost at the same moment the doctor the surgeon if you will Lost control of his forceps and blood spurted from his boyhood, his boy boyhood friend. Blood spurted against the glass where he had his face pressed to. And he was, he almost fainted. He didn't get over it. It was a shocking moment. It would be for anyone. And he was, he was intensely troubled. He he thought to himself: if this is how I react at the sight of blood, how am I ever going to be? an explorer he came to doubt at a young age when that is such it is such a burden those days and maybe in our time for a young boy growing up on the verge of manhood to doubt that he has courage and so for the next his adolescence really through through his age 20 he was on a quest to prove his manhood. He first started walking around the bell tower, five stories above the ground of the church. It was six inches wide, you know, which was probably pretty dangerous. But it didn't seem to you know, cure his fear that he lacked courage. He would sit in graveyards at night uh, and never really overcame it. And then the Civil War started. He wanted to enlist. He wanted to join the Union Army. He was caught up in the passion of the day, but he was too young to enlist without his father's permission, and his father would not give him permission. So what he tried to do was to join what was called the US Military Telegraph Corps, which really wasn't a military unit, but provided the telegraph signaling, putting up the wires on the battlefields to connect them to headquarters and then on to Washington, where Lincoln was in the telegraph office. He wanted to become a field operator, which was almost as dangerous as being a soldier in the Union Army because they were shot. They were blown up. Uh, If they were captured, they didn't wear uniforms. They could be executed. But in the end, he ended up in a telegraph office in Cincinnati working himself to death. He was one of the best operators, but he was working, you know, 24 hours at a clip without a break, sitting at his telegraph device. eating uh, his dinner might be a slice of pie in one hand while he was transcribing messages with the other, he set an office record of transcribing 50 telegrams in one hour. Uh, And the pace, because it was war and these were wartime cables, the pace was horrific and he succumbed to it. He came down with all kinds of medical problems Uh, He would write his family that his face has become as pale as a ghost, and it was true. Uh, And he thought that that was going to be the end of him. And then he learned of this, and you you referred to it, Nicholas, this this Russian-American telegraph expedition, which was going to string telegraph wire, put up poles and string telegraph wire in Siberia. And I'll give you the context a little more detail in a moment, and he absolutely lunges for it. He sees this as a way both to pursue his dream of being an explorer and to cure his fear that he lacked courage. And he goes home. He's accepted, partly through his connections at the U.S. Military Telegraph Corps. And he goes home to his family and he announces, I'm joining... An expedition that's going, and at that point it was going to be Alaska, not Siberia. We'll get to that in a moment. But I mean now I'm going to go to Alaska and I'm going to explore a route in the wilds of Alaska for a telegraph line. And his family is shocked. Why? Because his health is horrible. And his wilderness experience to date has consisted of only boyhood camping trips within a mile of his home. And So he asked the doc, he being our George Kennan, asked the doctor to examine him and pronounce him fit. The doctor examines him and he goes to Kennan's father and he says, well, Mr. Kennan, I think you might as well let him go to Alaska because if you do, he has a chance of living. You send him back to that telegraph office, he's going to die. He's nothing but a bag of bones. And so with a very apprehensive family. He sets off to Alaska, it's then changed, he's given an opportunity to go to Siberia and participate in one of the most far-fetched, almost mad commercial enterprises that anyone has come up with, because what were they trying to do? For the last, this is now in 1865, for the last 10 years, Telegraph companies have been trying to string a cable across the Atlantic, connect to Europe and the United States. And five expeditions, if you will, giant ships, land cables had failed. The cable kept snapping and sinking. Uh, once it worked for a few weeks and then it stopped working. And so Western Union thought it could, do, it could succeed in connecting North America and Europe. The long way around, by building a cable from San Francisco to British Columbia, through British Columbia, through uh, what was then Russian Alaska, under the Bering Strait, 2,000 miles through Siberia, to hook up with, that's a 5,000 mile cable or so we're talking about now, to hook up with what? A 7,000 mile cable that the Russian empire was building from St. Petersburg to Siberia. A 12,000 mile telegraph cable that would be connected Uh, that would connect North America and Europe via San Francisco and St. Petersburg. And he was working, he was exploring the the Siberian line. And he spent three years sleeping in indigenous yurts in northeastern Siberia, uh, lying, sleeping next to carcasses, reindeer carcasses and piles of drying fish or camping at night in minus 50 degrees which was so cold that when he sat by a 10-foot fire, the soup in his cup froze before he could finish it. And he was having the time of his life. He learned to to mush dog sleighs. He went on rescue expeditions. Uh, He got to know the indigenous people and really enjoyed meeting them and learning their customs. Uh, In the end... (laughs) Three years, it wasn't a failure. It was a competition because while they were, he and his colleagues were exploring this telegraph route in Siberia, the telegraph companies in the Atlantic were trying again. And this time in 1866, they succeeded. They laid the Atlantic cable. Word didn't get to Kennan and his colleagues for another year. They kept at it in the wilderness, not knowing that they had lost the competition. But once that Atlantic table was laid, the, the, the Western Union enterprise, which is a joint enterprise with Russia, was abandoned. He returns home to Norfolk. How? He travels from the Pacific to St. Petersburg, mostly by horse-drawn sleigh. What a marvelous journey for a young man. He was then in his early 20s. 6,000 miles through this, through across Siberia in a horse drawn sleigh. It was then winter. Uh, It took him two months and he arrives in St. Petersburg and he is absolutely, to use our vernacular, blown away by this dazzling city and that seals his bond with Russia. And That is also the catapult for everything he did afterwards. Why? Because when he returned home for lack of anything better to do, I mean, his skills setting up a winter camp and navigating across a frozen tundra were not exactly in demand in Ohio. So he sets out to write. And ultimately, he writes a book called Tent Life in Siberia about his Siberian experience that even today is considered a classic in adventure stories and received reviews nationally that praised it for its account with a great sense of humor, because that's one of his defining characteristics of this time he spent in Siberia. It gives them the basis for a journalism career. He becomes a reporter for the Associated Press. And it ultimately leads to his Siberian exile investigation.
1: Um. Jumping forward, um, uh, jumping forward now to the other side of the Siberian investigation, um, Kenan comes back and he launches this big advocacy campaign, um, like a series of lectures where he talks about his experience, what he saw, um, and and you note that it starts; it may have helped to change views, U.S. views um, of Russia. Um, but, but, but what exactly does, does Kennan do, um, upon his return from his, from his investigation?
0: Well, I think when it, when you talk about the relationship between Russia and the United States, there's a before and an after the before is before Kennan's exile investigation. And it's really almost impossible to conceive today, but Americans, both ordinary Americans and American governments had a very benign, friendly, even affectionate view of Russia. They thought of it as a distant friend of the United States. Uh, Imperial Russia had been the only European country to openly support the North in the Civil War. Uh, They had read great Russian literature, and so the image was of a mysterious land with romantically tragic men and women, populated by romantically tragic men and women. And this Russian-American Telegraph expedition was a high point. It was a major collaborative effort by the two countries. They both invested huge resources into it, a high point in that relationship. That was the before. The after is when Ken returns to the United States. He, He had been really debilitated by his um, his eight months investigating the exile system, he he reunited with his wife in London, and she barely recognized him. His companion, the artist George Frost, had suffered a nervous breakdown and needed medical treatment. So grueling had this been period had had this had the exile investigation been, and partly just because of the relentless exposure to human suffering. And he he really comes back a changed man, and he writes a friend from London while he's still recuperating that he was going to mobilize American opinion when he returned to pressure Russia to reform the exile system if not eliminate it and bring freedom to Russians. And he said, if by the, this is what he wrote, if by the time I have finished all the writings and the lecturing, I haven't touched the hearts of Americans about the exile suffering, then I will think my countrymen have no hearts to be touched or sympathies to be aroused. So he comes home and he writes 29 29 articles for the Century Illustrated monthly magazine, which was one of the most widely read magazines of its day, he turns those articles into a 1,000-page book, Siberia and the Exile System, that is translated into every major European language and is smuggled sort of part by part into Russia. It actually inspires Leo Tolstoy and Anton Chekhov, to create their own works, not fiction and nonfiction, respectively, condemning the exile system. But then, and I think this was really what made the difference to Americans, then Kenan goes on, and I'm not exaggerating, a nine-year lecture tour, mostly in the United States. He crosses the country. He lectures to perhaps as many as a million people perhaps 800 times. He once lectured two, did 200 lectures in a row without missing a day lecturing. He speaks to thousands at any one of these lecturers. He lectured 26 times in Boston. And on the 26th occasion, there were 2,000 people in the audience. He was a fantastic speaker. His agent his booking agent thought he was one of the best. And this agent represented Mark Twain and Walt Whitman. uh, Journalists, because he was famous, and this was having such an impact, reported on the lectures. And and they wrote that when he spoke, you could almost smell the odor of the prisons. Uh, The audiences, some of them 2,000 people at one lecture, many sobbing. At another lecture, he spoke, and then there was silence, a full minute elapsed, and then a storm of applause broke out. At another lecture, he spoke, and the audience stayed to organize a protest against the exile system, which resulted in all signing of millions of of people signed petitions, and by the time he was done. Americans' attitudes towards Russia had changed from one of Russia is our distant friend to one of apprehension and unease and distrust and that pretty much there have been periods mostly in World War II where that wasn't the case as much but for the most part that is still the relationship we have today, and you can trace it that has come to us today. You can trace it back to George Kennan and his lectures. I'm not suggesting it was the only uh, factor, but I think he was the principal driver. And that was it that coincided that his lectures and so on coincided with a, a transformation in American diplomacy, which was that American diplomacy became much more sensitive had to for various reasons to american public opinion so his impact on american public opinion had an impact on american diplomacy towards russia
1: yeah and, and i was i mean i was thinking about this um, when i was preparing for this for this interview and I was like have there been other i was i was trying to think like have there been other um big pieces of journalism um, that have changed perspectives on a, con- a U.S. perspective on, on a country so radically. Obviously, there have been big investigations into human rights abuses around the world, um, but they tend to be on, on countries that America has, we can say, at best, a neutral opinion, if not already slightly negative. So, so, so it didn't. It it, it just kind of intensified maybe already negative feelings. Um, it feels like. Kennan's work may have been different in that it changed views from being positive to, to negative. And I I wonder I, I maybe you can explain more like like just, just how people I, I assume people got their information through very different sources in the 19th century. Those probably a lot less of it, certainly compared to um more recent times where there's much more, you know, mass media, people generally have more awareness of what's going on in the world. Um I, I was wondering what 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 you thought about that As I was thinking about like what are some other very, very impactful um, types of journalism that have again radically shifted uh, uh, the U- the US.'s view of another country?
0: you know I, I looked into that when I was writing the book because I was looking mm-hmm. for sort of comp- comparables. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't say I covered you know the entire field, but nothing came up. That was really comparable to what Kennan mm-hmm. did. I, you think of books like John Reed's 10 Days That Shook the World by an American journalist about the Russian Revolution, where he was there. Mm-hmm. And it, it certainly affected people's appreciation of what had happened in the Russian Revolution. You, you think of not so much a journalist, but a fantastic writer, Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. T. E. Lawrence and the and the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which had a, a, a real impact on people's understanding of the war in the Middle East during World War One, but I I just couldn't come up with anything with a comparable uh, diplomatic impact. In other words, it just didn't move people. Didn't say, "Gee, I didn't know that," but it actually affected the relationship between the countries. Uh, and in ways that lasted such a long time. And how was he able to do it? I I think perhaps one reason is that most of the journalists you, you can think of, like the ones I mentioned or others, what they do is they write. They put out a book. They put out articles. And some of them may very well go on lecture tours and all that. But I don't think there's been a lecture tour in American history. Like the cannon did, that lasted so long, mm. was such a good speaker, with such intense, you know, was such huge turnout. Uh, there's another factor, and I allude to it in the book. I think his timing. It doesn't wasn't just he was a good speaker. It, it wasn't just that his topic was also, you know, mm. it was pretty exotic country, so people were interested in that too. I think the timing. It's it's now 1889 to roughly 1897, and Americans are still not willing to deal with their own human rights abuses. Mm -hmm. Consider the plight of the newly freed blacks and their Mm -hmm. descendants and the horrible oppression, deprivation of their rights, or what was being done to Native Americans where the U.S. Army was about to extinguish their independence, if not their culture. And all that was unfolding around Americans and raised very uncomfortable questions about American respect for the human rights of their own citizens and compatriots. Uh, and so here you have a faraway land which doesn't invoke guilt. And I think that made Americans more receptive to listening to about, to listening to human human rights abuses in Russia. But I think the, the, the lecture tour and its impact. I mean, I little children started writing the czar. We, you know, we're four little children in America and we want you to do something which would please us very much. And, we, and that is we just stop sending people to Siberia. And if you do that, we'll be happy to send our pictures. I quote that letter. It was amazing to come across it because it illustrates what a profound impact he had this became this must have become a, a topic for kitchen uh table talk and russia certainly was extremely alarmed because their own agents reporting back to saint petersburg were writing that this man cannon is doing incalculable damage to russia and they set out to discredit him it's a whole other story but he he fended it off um and and kept doing what what he was doing.
1: And, and I, I I do want to just know, I think, to to Kennan's to Kennan's credit, um, again, at the time, I mean, he he was willing to to talk about um, the not great things America had done. Um, and I believe was some of his editors were like, "Let's not talk about that right now. <laughs> Let's put it aside and focus more on 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 the Russia stuff." But but they, but but Kenan was, I think he he was aware of of I think America's he, own problems.
0: Well, there's an interesting story. Um, he was he was almost begged by Laura in Mississippi who who had written him to speak out against the um, the penal system that was used in the South the convict labor system where blacks who were convicted of a crime were sentenced to labor on what? On somebody's big farm, some white person's farm, where they were chained uh, as punishment. And it, this writer, this lawyer said, you, with your authority and your knowledge, your your sort of your credentials as an expert on abusive prisons, you could you could make a difference. And he was moved by this. He referred to it, not so much in his articles, but in the book, which was after the letter came in, his book, uh, Siberian, the Exile System. But he didn't, from what I could see, didn't really speak out about it. And I think, And I think he did not want to draw too much attention to it for fear of what you could call comparative human rights, mm. which is that people would say, well, the Siberian exile system couldn't be all that bad because we're doing it to our own people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think he, he was a little fearful. And the truth is, modern human rights, uh, it, at its best, does not make a comparison. It doesn't say, well, so-and-so is doing something terrible, but such-and-such is doing something worse, which excuses it. And you want to stay out of that that trap. But nonetheless, I, I think it was a failing on his part that he did not do more. On the other hand, he did continue to speak out not just about the exile system, but he became quite eloquent about the pogroms against Jews in Russia mm. and condemned Russia very harshly for that. And, and it partly may have been he wanted to stay within his own field of, of expertise.
1: Um, you know, I I I, I want to end by by basically bringing us to to today um I mean obviously u.s russia relations are um are in the news again they've been in the news again since you know March was a March February 2022 when with with the war in Ukraine um it's definitely back on people's minds in a way that, it might not have been quite as much between 91 and let's say 2014 um but kind of looking looking at at, at this history kind of what makes um what makes kennan's work why why is kennan's work kind of still important to know about today
0: uh, a new york times journalist stationed in moscow mm-hmm. in the 50s and 60s once observed that in a review of Kennan's book, a reissue of Kennan's book *Siberia and the Exile System*, he observed that time passes more slowly in Russia than mm-hmm. in the West, and that makes Kennan's observations from seventy years earlier relevant today. And I think it's still true. And and I was struck by his encounter with what he wrote about his encounter with a particularly appalling, they were were all appalling, but this was a particularly appalling prison. And he, he wrote in his journal that while he was still in Siberia, that its inmates submitted to an existence that was as hard as human life can be made. Our convicts would pull down the prison and all make their escape in less than a week but patient endurance and submission to authority are a part of the Russian character. Now, I, one is always reluctant to generalize about a country, but but I do think he was onto something there, and you can look through Russian history at the ability of Russians to tolerate uh, horrible, horrible conditions. Um, you could consider Russian history as to be the story of one tragedy after another through which the Russians have patiently endured and to submit to authority. And and I think where I see that kind of uh, characteristic at work today is I I think of the Russian invasion of Ukraine where I think first the West underestimated Russian endurance uh, in that conflict. Uh, And second, the willingness of Russians to endure a war, and not all of them, because hundreds of thousands left, but the bulk of Russians seem so far to be enduring a war that has cost 350,000 casualties for a goal that appears to serve no national need, but certainly, in my view, the messianic needs of its ruler, and yet they're enduring it. Uh, I always think there's there's in any country there's a breaking point. Certainly, that was reached in 1917 in the Russian Revolution. Uh, but whether they're anywhere close to that, I I don't know. Uh, but I think that's that's an observation that has to be kept in mind, particularly when considering how that that war. Might go.
1: So I think with that, that ends your interview with Gregory Walnitz, author of Into Siberia George Kennan's Epic Journey Through the Brutal Frozen Heart of Russia. Greg, I actually have two final questions for you, which are um, where can people find your work and uh, all of your work, not just this book? Um, and what's next? What do you think the next project might be?
0: <laughs> well, the first is easier to answer than the second. Uh, into Siberia, which was reviewed in the New York Times a week or so ago, and which was named this last Sunday as the top editor pick, uh, is sold everywhere, all the outlets, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, I have a book website, which covers all my books, at Gregory GregoryWallens, com. I can't answer your second question. Uh, I'm still looking into it. Uh, I'm always interested in issues or books or issues that involve somebody who has, a, has to deal with a profound moral challenge and how they deal with it, particularly if the moral challenge is something that is new to them, isn't really part of their frame of reference. So hopefully I'll find, and that was certainly true in into Siberia, and hopefully I'll find a book where I can develop that theme in a different context.
1: Well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsiaReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow them on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. And you can find many more author reviews at The New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with friends to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Diego Luis, author of The First Asians in the Americas, A trans History. But before then, Greg, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you, Nicholas. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and the questions were great.